0: chapter 2. We are in the book of Revelation, and I've told you multiple times, and you will get tired of hearing me say this, but it is not revelations. It is revelation, the supreme, the only revelation of Jesus Christ. And in this letter, John gets a vision from Jesus about what's going to take place what has happened place, what is now happening during John's day, and what will take place after these things. And so it is a prophetic book. It is a well-known book, but it's not well known for what's in it, but what may or may not be in it. There's a lot of conjecture about what these visions mean. And so as we have been studying it, I've pointed out that in verse 3, there's a blessing attached to those who read it. Who learn its contents and then who act upon what they learn from it. And so in this letter, we have an outline given to us to basically make the book simpler to understand. In verse 19, he says, Write down the things that you have seen, chapter 1, what is now taking place, and we see that in chapter 2 and 3, and then what will take place after these things, chapter 4 through 22. So most of the book is actually about future events. So he says, I write to you concerning these things because they will take place very quickly once they start. So we are now in the section, chapter 2 and 3, where it has seven letters to seven existing churches in John's day. And these churches will be listed in the order that he's mentioned them in chapter uh, 1. But applying these letters, there are three ways that you can apply these letters. Now, the first application for what they say in their contents is actually locally. These are letters just like the New Testament epistles to specific churches, except instead of being through Paul or John or Peter, they're actually written by Jesus through the pen of John to these local assemblies. How cool is it that these churches, forever will be known churches, that Jesus specifically revealed himself to John so they could hear what he had to say about them. So the the application can be local to the actual churches that existed in John's day. But there's another application. Historically, many commentators, many theologians have come up with seven periods that have existed in church history. And then personally, there is a universal message to God's church to instruct them to commend them in some cases, and to rebuke them in some cases, but always to instruct for the building up and the edification of the church. So primarily what we will focus on is the local and the personal application of these letters. So as we get into these letters, I want to remind you of something that we looked at last week. I thought... No, we're not going to do that. We're going to start with Ephesus, the context that the letter is written to. So let's, let's look at Ephesus. Before we start reading in the scriptures, I'll give you a short history lesson. So, Ephesus, the town, is off the coast of modern day Turkey. And off that coast, it was a port city. Ephesus, the word, actually means desired one, it was a place that many would desire to live. It was the most influential city in Asia Minor in its day. There was approximately 250,000 people that populated the area. Now, in Roman culture, this was actually known as a free city. So Romans, the Roman government, did not get highly involved or interfere with their day-to-day life. As a government or on a personal level. So you can imagine it'd be like going to a sandals resort, right? Hey, I get to go there. I get to enjoy the ocean view. I get to experience the land, breathe in the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean breezes, and nobody's going to tell me what to do with my time. We would all love that, right? We all desire to go to vacation somewhere just like this place. It was also a city that hosted Olympic Games, so this was no podunk. Um, and these games were heavily attended. And so, also, it was an economic center. It wasn't just a resort, but it was also a place where the economy was boosted, primarily because in its day, it had four major roads that intersected in this spot. Think about it. If you want to have a business, you want to have it where the people will be. You want to be in a major intersection. You want to be on Main Street. And so, businesses thrived in this place. Also, it was a port city because there was a river that connected it to the Aegean Sea. It was about six miles inland, but in its day, it was very easy to access because the Aegean Sea, though it was a port city, the ships would be able to actually roll down the river that would go into the center of the city, and what happens when ships come in? there's lots of commerce, there's lots of trade, there's lots of buying and selling, and then the four major roads make it a place where all that stuff can go to all of Asia. Well, what else could be put in this place to be able to spread to all of Asia? Well, the Apostle Paul shared the gospel, the word of life, hope for the world, Jesus. And so, This major place was a a seedbed where God's going to sow the gift of the gospel. And so, but also something that spiritually dominated as well as physically dominated the uh, landscape of Ephesus was a place called the Temple of Diana or the Temple of Artemis. Now, the temple is beautiful. There's a picture for you on the screen and it was huge. It was actually more ornamental than even the... uh, oh gosh, I can't think of it, so you'll get it later, um, but it was a place of worship of a false god by the name of Artemis. Now, in order to worship this false god, uh, you would go up to the temple, you would pay a fee, and then you would commit such sex- sexual acts with a prostitute, and in its heyday, thousands of prostitutes would be in this place. This was a den of iniquity, It was a brothel, uh, but it was in the name of religion, so people accepted it. But she was the goddess of fertility. So I have there for you the statue on the upper left-hand corner of the screen of Artemis. And she was a multi-breasted idol, and she was made from silver. And below all of her multiple breasts were eggs. So she was the goddess of fertility. So if you wanted your crops to grow, you would go worship Diana if you wanted to have children, you would go worship Diana. Now, there's lots of implications to that. There's lots of fruit from consequences from that sin. Uh, Many times uh, we think of things like abortion and we go, man, how in the world is this happening? And many times it's not so much that abortion is just a symptom to the actual sin, which is seeking pleasure. And so these guys were worshiping, but they were really, even if they didn't believe in the goddess, they just were seeking pleasure. Think about it. It is a port city. When sailors would come in and they'd been on the ship with a bunch of stinky dudes, what do you think they're going to do when they come ashore? By the way, that still happens today, right? These port cities all over the world where these unwanted babies are created through seeking pleasure, And so I say all of that to say that this is the place that no one would want to plant a church. This is a place where you go, well, nobody's going to want that. This would be like thinking about planting a church in Vegas, right? We went to my first pastor's conference as a senior pastor. I went to Southern California, and we're sitting down, we're worshiping. We're just having this awesome—imagine pastors and worship leaders just filling a room— and just like giving it all to the Lord. It is just the most beautiful sound. And then we get done, and they int- they asked us to introduce ourselves to the people around us, meet some other pastors. And we're sitting down next to this couple that have planted a church in Las Vegas. And my wife, who is from Annapolis, says, how in the world do you share the gospel there? And he said, you know, it's interesting it's actually easier because people there know they're sinners. They don't think, they don't act like they got it all together. They, they're okay with their sin. They're loving it. That's why they live there. But they also know the destination sickness that comes from getting all the pleasure you want and then realizing, wow, that didn't fulfill me either. And so here's where Paul finds himself. Here's the church that many years later, around 96 AD, Jesus is speaking into this church that still remains from Acts chapter 18 verse 9, through 19. So before we get into what Jesus has to say about himself and to the church and what he wants to instruct them in, let's look at the beginnings of the Ephesian church there in Acts chapter 18. And actually, I lied to you, turn to Acts chapter 19 verse 8. Now Paul has gone to Ephesus in the second missionary journey And when he's along the way, he plants this church, and this is how it happened. Verse 1 of chapter 19. And it happened. He meets this guy, Apollos, who was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to a place called Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed in Jesus? And of course, we would think, Well, of course they would, because that's. The promise of the spirit jesus departed but he said I, i'm going to my father but i leave with you the holy spirit well they hadn't heard that message and so they said to him we have not so much as even heard whether there is a holy spirit and so jesus or excuse me paul says into what then were you baptized so they said we were baptized into john's baptism so imagine this there's people all the way in ephesus "...who have heard about John's baptism of repentance, but have not received the rest of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen from the dead for the forgiveness of sin." And so he says, you can have the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, "...John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus." And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied, and the men were about twelve in all. So twelve disciples out of this sharing. And so out of that, verse 8, he went into the synagogue, and he spoke boldly for three months to the Jewish believers reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But what happened every time is that Paul would approach and he would go first to the synagogue because they had the Old Testament law. He would start with those that had the divine revelation of Jesus through the law. And he would have a basis from which to build a foundation on. That salvation is not through the law, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so Many times many would believe, but others would say, Absolutely not, you gotta fulfill the law. And at that point, Paul didn't stay there and say, No, 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 you gotta believe this. He didn't beat down their door and stay there. Eventually he would depart and he would go to people that would listen. And I think many times we try to shove Jesus down people's throats. By the way, I don't think that we live in a day and age where we even scratch the surface at trying to beg people to follow Jesus. All the time I hear about people saying Oh, you can't shove religion down people's throats. And I'm here to say to you today, as I watch culture, no one's even mentioning Jesus, let alone shoving him down their throats. Talking about Jesus is not shoving. Talking about Jesus is just talking about Jesus. And if people want to believe or not, that's fine. The people that don't want to believe are going to feel like you're shoving religion down their throat. To those who don't believe, it's Jesus is the aroma of death because it's, it means they have to die to themselves. But to those of us who are believing, talking about Jesus is the aroma of life. And if you've ever mentioned Jesus in an everyday conversation, you know who you're talking to by how they respond, by whether they want to go, they're like, I got a thing, I got a, you know, or if they're sitting there going, oh, give me more, it's just water to their thirsty soul. But all that to say, when he got done with them, It says that some of the itinerant, verse 13, Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of... Wait, zoomed ahead. Verse 8, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So he said, this venue doesn't work. All that are going to believe will. So I'm going to go find another venue. And he found the school of Tyrannus. In those days, they had school during the evenings and during the mornings. And in the middle of the day, the building was empty because it was hot. So he said, hey, I'm going to go use this building. It's made for learning. And I'm going to teach whoever will listen about Jesus. And it says there that while he did that, he did it for two years 2 years and so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus both Jews and Gentiles now I told you this you do your best business on main street people came through this place all the time and so he would teach whoever would listen and it doesn't say that all of Ephesus 250,000 people by the way heard the gospel it says all of Asia Over the course of two years, heard everything that Paul testified of. Man, if I could have that kind of influence in my lifetime, I would feel more than blessed. But here we live in a day and age where maybe we don't live in a city where we have 250,000 people. Maybe we don't have a crossroads that has four major roads that come through it, right? We're off the beaten path. But we are on the stinking internet all the time. We proclaim what we love. What does the world see that you love through the avenues he's given you to share? So, Paul was passionate, he was steadfast. And it says in verse 11, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did the same thing. And the evil spirit answered them when they tried to exercise the demons and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirits was leaped, was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded This became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, 250,000 people, and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. There was power in the life that was submitted to Jesus, power over the things that they feared. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And many of those who had practiced magic brought their magic books together and burned them in the sight of all magic books. Those are still prevalent, by the way. People still talk about magic. People still believe in it. And I'm here to say to you today that when they had the fear of the Lord, they threw away these books. And it says here, they counted up the value of these books and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Now to us, silver, silver, right? It's expensive. So I did a little research. One piece of silver was about one day's wage. So think about what an average person makes in a day and multiply that by 50,000. It was about several it was several million dollars. They didn't care about how much money they had invested into these magic books or whatever book that you have that majors on magic and the occult is what it is. They burned them suckers. They had a big old bonfire and it wasn't One of those, like, where you're trying to, you know, squelch freedom of speech. They had a fear of the Lord that made them depart from anything that even alluded to evil. They burned it. They got rid of those suckers. And so, here we have, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So, my point is, this is the church we're talking to here. Some mighty things have happened to start the church And in the meantime, the the number of the believers grew. So as we start in verse one, longest intro ever. (laughs) If we start in verse one, as Revelation chapter two starts, it says to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, last week I inferred, that Jesus in the midst of these seven golden lampstands was a picture of what happened in Exodus chapter 20 through 25 somewhere. Uh, I know that's vague, but go dig into it. God instructs them on how to make this lampstand that would be in the tabernacle. And on the right-hand side is a present-day version of the description now, that's a picture of the seven-branched golden lampstand that the Temple Institute has made in Jerusalem. It's on display. It's in clear glass, and it is protected, and it has video cameras from every angle because it's made out of real gold. And that stinking thing is about from here to here in height, and it's, it's very beautiful. But it was a picture of what was in the temple originally. They've rebuilt it because they have plans to start temple sacrifice again when the way is made by this person that will come into Jerusalem and set up the new tabernacle, the new temple. But we'll get into that later. So if you see the picture in the middle, this is this rendering, this artist's rendering of the seven golden lampstands with Jesus in the midst of it, with the seven stars, the angels or the messengers or the pastors of those churches. But I also had another thought this week. I thought maybe I misspoke and I don't know what I'm talking about. That happens a lot. So on the left-hand side, I have a picture of a menorah that is a Hanukkah menorah. And if you know the history of Hanukkah, the temple uh, lighting was kept going for eight days miraculously uh, during the Maccabean period. But in there, they have eight branches coming out of the lampstand. But notice, if you will, that instead of having just seven branches or or eight branches, they have another branch that's behind it. Sometimes it's above it, but that's the helper branch where they would leave a candle sitting there to light all the other branches. Well, the menorah is not supposed to work that way. The way a menorah works is that at the base, there's a place they would pour in the olive oil, and then there are wicks in each one of those branches that go down to one source for the oil, which is a picture of Jesus being in the midst of the seven-branch candlestick. He's not just in the midst of it. He's the source of their light. Do you get that? Jesus is the source of our light, Jesus is the source of our strength. He is the light of the world, and because we are tied into him, Jesus then goes on to tell us, You are the light of the world. And so, as he's told them this, I'm the source of your strength, I'm the source of your light, he now goes on to commend them. He says, I know you. And if there's one thing that Jesus can tell you that will scare the tar out of you and at the same time, hopefully, comfort you as a believer, it is that he knows you. Now, being known and knowing someone is an intimate thing. Being known by someone is something we all want to do, but at the same time, once you get to know people, it's scary because now they really know who you actually are versus who you portray yourself to be. And Jesus says, I'm revealing myself to you, and I want you to know that I know you. And so he says, I know, verse 2, your works i know your labor your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil that you have testified those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars you have persevered and have patience and have labored not labored labored for my name's sake and you've not been become weary nevertheless i have this against you that you have left your first love. I got ahead of myself. Then in verse 6, he says, but this I have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he starts with a commendation. I want you to know that I know you and there's some really great stuff coming out of your lives. Specifically, there's some really great things going on in your church. You work hard ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that god's prepared works for us so that we should walk in them that we were saved for good works and so there should be works that come out of your faith and then he says i commend you i know your labor now we're not talking about just a little bit of labor the word there is what you get the idea of uh, labor pains and you that have pushed a baby from forth from your body, you know that that is no small task. It is a blood, sweat, and tears labor. So he says, I know your hard work, the work that caused you pain. It cost you. I know your patience. The word patience there means endurance under pressure, but it doesn't just mean endurance under pressure. It means endurance under pressure with a good attitude. Now, I will confess that I endure under pressure many times with a horrible attitude. I won't say poor, I'll say horrible. I will say horrible. And so he says that you have commending this church labored hard with endurance under pressure with a good attitude. That's that's quite the commendation. Uh, endurance means that you're getting squeezed. And when you're getting squeezed, Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. The fruit of your heart pours out through you as you get squeezed. And I will confess to you that many times what comes out of my mouth is not good. And so it's proving I don't have a good heart. Disney was wrong. I don't have good heart. I have bad heart. Jesus came to save me and give me a new heart. That's why I need him. And so he also says, I know that you have a hatred for evil. You're intolerant of evil individually and as a group. Proverbs chapter 8 verse 13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Do you know that God does hate? He hates wickedness. He hates evil so much that he allowed his son to be killed so that we could be forgiven of our hatred and our evil and our wickedness and be in fellowship with him again. He will not have fellowship with evil. He says, I know your willingness to reveal false teachers. They were Bereans. Acts chapter 17 verse 11 says that the people of Berea were more noble because they would go to a Bible study, they would be in church with people, and then they would go home and dig into their Bibles to see if what was taught was actually according to the word of the Lord, if it was wicked or if it was righteous. Um, He says, I know your perseverance, that you've grown in your works, but you have not grown weary in your works, in the labor. And in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 through 10, he says, I want you to persevere. I want you to work hard. But he says, I want you not to grow weary in well-doing, for in good time, as the seed that you've sown and planted will bring forth a harvest if you do not lose heart. He says, I know your motivation. He says, you've labored, you've been patient for my name's sake. Their motive was pure for the sake of the name of the Lord and his name being praised. And then finally in verse six, he says, this thing I have for you, this thing I commend you for, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, Throughout church history, no one's really known who these Nicolaitans were, and there's conjecture about that. But if you break down the word Nico, Nico, maybe some of you are wearing Nikes. That's where we get our word Nike from. It means conqueror. So if you wear Nikes, hopefully, at whatever you're doing with those shoes, you're a conqueror. But he says also, Nicolaitan, the word laos, actually means people or laity so you hate the deeds of those who conquer the people or conquer the laity the people that are in church that are leaders that rather than feeding the sheep they want to conquer the sheep and get from them what they want he says i have this i want to commend you in you hate the deeds of those who would use their power to overrun the sheep rather than love the sheep and serve them and take care of them. What did Jesus tell Peter but to feed my sheep? If you love me, you'll feed my lambs. You'll take care of them. So look at all the things that are listed that Jesus, get. there's over eight, there's eight or more things that he says, hey, high five, knuckles, you know, like you're doing great. You're, and this is one of the ones that I think if we were in this church, we'd be like, they're nailing it. They're, they're firing it all. I mean, it's, it's exactly what it should look like, right? But then he goes on, because I spoiled it by reading verse 5, he says, I have this one thing against you, and you need to repent of it. All these good things are going on, but this one thing I have against you is verse 5. Remember, he says, well, sorry, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Notice he does not say what is oft misquoted, you have lost your first love. That's not what he's saying. He says, you've left it. You've departed from first love. Now, what is first love? In order to describe this, I have to tell you that there are many times where in your life you see first love. and Many times it's newlyweds. Many times it's people that are dating. They, it, first love is inconvenient, it's not economical it it doesn't make sense you the person that loves the other person when they're in first love will go to the ends of the earth to do a simple thing just because they want to just because they want to bless the person you know the other night and sorry Stephen but the other night we're at the basketball game and I'm sitting there talking to Stephen and all of a sudden his antenna went up and he was gone and I was like where'd Stephen go and I look across the, ba- the basketball game. And there he is sitting with, with his girlfriend. Here she is. And I'm like, well, I get it. You know, Erica's over there. You know, that's first love. He didn't care who was talking to him. He didn't care who he left. He left his own family, flesh and blood. He gone, Burn rubber. I don't think I've seen him move that fast in a basketball game. I'm sorry, Stephen. My pastor did that to me, so I know what it feels like. So you can hit me afterwards. But it's true, right? That's first love. To reel it back in, I mean, first love will go to the ends of the earth. You know, I, I don't have to pick on. I can pick on Drew. Drew's driving all the way to Springfield just to go say hi because he had a day off. You know. Oh yeah, I had to stay up, but you know, I'll work it out. You know, give him five months of marriage and be like, I don't know if I want to get up and talk to you before you go off to work at six a.m. You know. But that's first love. So think about that in your relationship to Jesus. And maybe you've never experienced a relationship with Jesus that has that kind of first love. But first love delights to hear from the one that is the partaker of the love. First love will will do anything to spend time. Uh, Getting up in the morning and praying with the Lord through the years for me has been an on and off thing. And just this week I was struggling to focus even to study this passage and the Lord said, I'm, I'm like, Lord, why am I struggling so much? I love you. I love the, the word of God. It's, it's what I've given my life to. And he says, you're doing all this stuff, but you left your first love. You're focused on all the stuff that's getting done. And, and while that stuff is all good and well, if it's not flowing out of a love, knowing that I've been loved by Christ then it's gonna be sweaty and worn out and I'm gonna grow weary and it's not gonna be fun. It's not gonna be joy-filled. It's gonna be like, I have to do this versus, man, I get to serve the Lord. And so uh, whatever your master passion is, Ephesus, Jesus says it's lost its focus. And they were going through the motions. They were going from muscle memory. They were doing it because they had to, not because they wanted to. So he has this one issue On the backdrop of all this good stuff going on and he says this is all great uh, but i have something against you i want to rebuke in you you need to repent this is sin we don't repent of things that aren't sin right we repent of sin he says you've left your first love and and so he tells them in verse five he says remember therefore from where you have fallen remember where it started Think about the time where you just could not, people couldn't keep you out of the church. You were the last one to leave. And there was a point in my life where I was the first one there and I was the last one to leave. And of course, now it's that same way, but that could be misconstrued because I'm the one locking the door, right? Uh, But the point is, is that Jesus says, if you'll seek first me and my kingdom and overwhelm yourself with, with what I have going on, what I'm showing you, then all the rest of this stuff will happen. All that stuff that they were doing can happen naturally out of a love for Christ or a love of Christ, recognizing he's loved us versus me going, I'm doing it because I love Jesus. The motivation should be, I'm doing it because Jesus loves me. This is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. He pursued me when I was still unrighteous and unlovable and, and sinful. And so all of that to say, he says, repent. Now, I was going to go through this thing, but I'm running out of time. But if you want to take a picture of the screen, let me send it to you later. I was going to go through Perius, uh, Perius, Peter as he experienced this. Um, in Matthew chapter 4, all Jesus had to say to Peter was, hey, leave your, leave your job and come follow me. And Peter's like, I'm in. He walked for it. He didn't have to explain it to him. John chapter 6, um, other people are leaving. Jesus has just said to them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. And, and then Jesus looked at his disciples, and after everybody else left, because he said a hard thing, he looked at Peter and all the disciples. He said, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter's like, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. And then in Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, hey, um, who, who do men say that I am? And he, they told him, and he said, "Okay, but who do you say that I am?" And and Jesus or Peter was like, "Hey, you're the Son of the Living God. You're you're God Most High Himself." And and so right after that, Jesus starts telling him, "Okay, as being Son of God, I'm going to de- I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be brutally murdered for salvation to happen." And and then Peter is on board with Jesus, but not necessarily on board with Jesus what he's going to do and and he says, hey, you're not going to die, Lord. And then what does Jesus do to him? He rebukes him. He says, depart from me, Satan. If you call one of your friends Satan, that's like a universal language for I hate you, right? Like what you're saying right now is of Satan, Beelzebub. And so uh, you can see that Peter kind of fell in love with Jesus, but as he learned more and got to know him more, he kind of backs away a little bit, which I believe is when it gets to the part where he he didn't just deny Jesus the night of his crucif- or the night of his betrayal; he was already starting to deny him because first love was departing. He left his first love, but in John chapter eighteen, there Peter is in the in the he's standing around a fire with a bunch of enemies of the Lord, and this not not a, a rough man, but a, a little girl walks up and says, "Hey, aren't you one of the disciples?" aren't you one of jesus disciples he goes no he gets asked so many times that he gets frustrated even curses he's like i don't even know the guy and that's where it started he left his first love the peter that would have given all to be brutally murdered at the very beginning all of a sudden he's like not even willing to testify about jesus to this girl and then in john chapter 18 he denies the lord So this is Peter who worked miracles in the name of Jesus. And I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, something that Jesus had said to his disciples. This is a serious offense, departing from our first love. And in verse 21, Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Kind of describes the church at Ephesus, right? They'd done all these great works in the name of the Lord. And he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so this is quite the, uh, the rebuke from Jesus saying, you've departed from your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Removing the lampstand is removing the thing that connects between the base of the lamp and where the light shines forth. He says, unless you repent of this departing from your first love, I'm going to take away your place of prominence. Everything that you do in my name will no longer actually be fruitful. It will be in vain. And so he rebukes them in this way. He says, remember, repent, repeat. And what happened to Peter is in John chapter 21, Peter is approached by Jesus. Now, I want to point out something I learned this week. John's on the boat fishing. He's gone back. Jesus has died. He's resurrected, and and they're waiting, and and he's he's out in the fishing boat. He's gone back to what he knows. Okay, Jesus is gone. I'm going to go back to before I met Jesus. I'm going to go fishing, and all the disciples are with him, and then it says that they saw a man on shore who said, hey, have you guys caught anything? Which is exactly what Jesus said to Peter the very first time he met him, and they looked over, and it says, the Apostle John recognized that it was Jesus who was calling to them. And when he told the guys, Peter, of all people, puts on his cloak, jumps in the water, and swims to shore. But what I noticed this week, and I've always questioned, why did he put on his cloak? Because it was first love. It didn't ma- have to make sense. He was like, okay, I need to take all my stuff with me. I'm going to see Jesus, and I'm not coming back. But then also, it says that they were so close to shore that the rest of them stayed on the boat and waited to get to shore, and then they saw Jesus. So he didn't have to swim. He could have just waited five seconds. But he was so excited to see the Lord that he had denied and to be restored into fellowship with him, he didn't care. He just flat out didn't care. It was uneconomical. He was going to be soaked the rest of the day. It was first thing in the morning. He didn't care about wet clothes. He wanted to be with the one that had forgiven him. He wanted to be with the person that he had failed. He felt convicted, which drove him right back to the one that saved him in the first place. And so Peter's reminded of the first love he had, and he acts on it. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13 through 15, Paul even says to the Corinthians, he says, you guys probably think I'm nuts. But he said, it's the love of Christ that compels me. If I'm crazy, I'm crazy for the sake of the Lord. I don't care who sees me. I don't care who hears me. I'm doing it. And and what happens is we find out that first love's not practical. It's not economical. It's really inconvenient. But first love will do whatever it takes to be with the object of its love. He says, repent. That word means agree with God, agree with me, and turn the other way. God tells you that you've departed from your first love then turn around and go back just like peter did don't go well he won't forgive me don't spend all that time going well i feel ashamed you should now turn around go back don't worry about the consequences he's got his arms open and then he says repeat go back to the first works don't just remember the first works but go back even if you don't feel it go back that's the story of my week at the end of the week, as I'm studying this passage, I'm going, Lord, I'm not feeling it. And he said, Return to your first works. Dig into the Word. Spend time with me in prayer. Be around Jesus people and talk about me. Talk about me with people that don't know me. Just do it. And what you'll find is as your, your body turns back in that direction, your heart will follow. And so, want to rekindle what you first had with Jesus? Do what the New Testament says pray without ceasing read the Bible for recreation. To some of you, that sounds ridiculous, but read it just for the fun of it. Read it to find out little things that you didn't know. Read it not because you're doing a Bible plan. Read something else. Take a break, whatever. Worship the Lord passionately. Give your body's actions to him. It is biblical. I know Tim Hawkins made fun of it, but it is biblical to raise your hands in worship. It is funny to think about carrying the TV, you know, washing the window, whatever. But, but use your body to worship the Lord. Serve Him in the actions. If you feel like you've not been loving your wife the way you're supposed to as a Christian, love your wife as worship to the Lord. Um, just whatever it might be. Fellowship with His people. And then share with, his, share with others the, His presence in your life, what He's showing you. And then the question becomes, who is this message for? So it's obviously for the Ephesians, right? He's writing to them specifically. It's for individuals. He says, whoever has an ear, let him hear. So whoever's going to listen. It's for the churches. He says, let the Spirit, who, let's see what the Spirit would say to the churches he who has an ear to hear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches it doesn't say just to the church all the churches that includes arcadia valley chapel that includes you and me as individuals so jesus says i know your works so my question for you would be what would the works be that he knows that you're doing jesus asked this question of each one of us have you left your first love now, you might ask, how can I know if I've left my first love? 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. It's a simple test, but it's an important test. He says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. He who overcomes the world, but who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Is keeping God's commandments and obeying the simple things a burden to you? And I would submit to you that if it's a burden, you've departed from your first love because first love will do those things and be excited about it. First love will do those things even though it's hard and be willing. So return to the first works So have you ever experienced this first love? I would first and foremost ask the question. To those of you that have experienced that, and I say remember the first works and you have that in your mind, go back to the first works. You know what I'm talking about. But maybe you're in here today and you don't even have a clue what I'm talking about. First love of Jesus. That's creepy. I can't even see him. I would submit to you that this is for you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever wills to believe will not perish, but instead will have everlasting life. That's for whosoever will. Whoever wants to call upon his name and believe in this truth, that's for you. I received it. You can too. So I would submit to you that you may not be able to return to first love. You might get to have it for the first time. You might get to go through your honeymoon phase with Jesus. Here's the day to profess him and say, Lord, I want to be yours. I want you to be the primary love in my life. If you're here today and you're married and your spouse is your primary love, they're going to miss it. It's not going to be Jesus. They're they're not meant to be Jesus to you. Jesus should be your first love. You should be just passionate about him. If you're here today and you got a a boyfriend or a girlfriend, same thing. If If your job is your first love, you need to repent. Return to your first love. If you're into sports, whatever it might be, whatever you find your identity in, this is for you. Return to your first love and return to your first works. How many of you know the story of Mary and Martha? Mary's working hard, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha's working hard. She's on, in the kitchen. And every time, we're always hard on Martha because she's working so hard. And we're always easy on Mary because she's worshiping the Lord. She's found this thing that Martha's missing out on, right? And my pastor said something, and he wrote a commentary on the books to the seven churches. But in that, he wrote um, that we should be able to maintain the works of Martha to serve practically, but at the same time, have the heart of Mary as worshipers, that both of them have something for us to give. So I wrote there for you, God grant us a heart to work like Martha, but give us the heart of Mary to simply sit at Jesus' feet. So Father, thank you for this rebuke. Thank you for this reminder that you know us. Help us. You know, for me, I've been through this cycle more times than I'd like to admit but you're always so faithful to bring me back to where I need to be that I'm serving not because I have to and, I, and, and just reminding me that it's the love of Christ that compels me because if it's not the love of Christ, it's going to be the aroma of death even to believers. It's going to be sweaty pits instead of a blessed servanthood. And so Father, help us to know where we stand with you in this and help us to Take the advice that was given to the Ephesian church to repent, to remember, to repent, and to repeat. Just like we would maintain our bodies by washing, lather, rinse, and repeat. Lord, help us to be washed in the water of your word, to remember, repent, and repeat. Lord, thank you so much for this fellowship. Thank you for your word that instructs us. And as we go through the seven churches, Lord, help us to see what you have for us as individuals And for us as a church, grow us together as a body. Grow us together as your hands and feet in this valley. And I continue to pray, Lord, revive us and bring revival in the hearts and minds of these that make up this beautiful valley that we live in. In Jesus' name, amen.